Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 33rd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday the 22nd of June 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is a week late, due to some interview scheduling difficulties. But don't be worried, I've lots of great episodes in the pipeline. If you'd like to help grease this episode pipeline, why not donate some of your hard-earned cash by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. And while you're at it, why not try out the show's Facebook and Twitter whatchamacallits. This week, we are joined by Professor Bill Black. Bill is an Associate Professor of Economics and Law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is an expert in white-collar crime and banking regulation and developed the concept of control fraud, in which a business executive uses the business he or she controls as a weapon to commit fraud. He is also the author of the book The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Today, Bill tells us about a series of articles he's written over the past year on the economic achievements and the political shenanigans of Rafael Correa, the President of Ecuador. We join the conversation as he tells us how he ended up being such an expert on Ecuador, of all places. Oh, it's like uh, everything else. It is uh, deeply planned and completely, of course, a question of uh, weird uh, fate. Uh, This one actually occurred because I gave a talk uh, and attended a talk at the annual meeting of economists. And the actually his uh, title at that time was quite wonderful. He was Ambassador Plenipotentiary. (laughs) Pedro Paez gave one of these talks and listened to uh, one of my talks. And he got interested in my work about control fraud and thought that it might have some relevance to Ecuador. And so in three very different capacities, uh, he's invited down basically once a year since then. And I got interested, of course, preparing for those talks, but then more interested because it's simply a great story and a great test of uh, economic principles because President Correa has a PhD in economics, has taught economics, and is trying things that mainstream economists say must lead to disaster, uh, but in fact have been proven exceptionally effective. So before we start to talk then of the ban Korea and his political and economic policies of the past few years, I suppose we should say something about what state the country Ecuador itself was in before he was elected and what it was that brought it to that state. So Ecuador was in, depending on exactly what year you look at, terrible straits. It had followed uh, many of the prescriptions of the so-called Washington Consensus. And if uh, people in uh, Ireland and elsewhere, of course, will be uh, quite familiar with austerity regimes, but they may not know that uh, Latin America was the testbed for these ideas and that the Washington Consensus, which was 
the consensus view of the U.S. government and institutions like the World Bank and the IMF was uh, that, that you needed a whole series of what they called reforms in Latin America, but a number one reform was austerity. And the idea was that uh, they needed to have austerity so they could pay back U.S. banks and the IMF and the World Bank, which, uh, of course, the U.S. is a major funder uh, of those institutions as well. And austerity, there's a debate in economic circles, but it certainly didn't work uh, terribly well. And countries like Ecuador were thrown for a significant number of years into rolling recessions. And this led to widespread bank failures in Ecuador and a really horrific economic crisis in which essentially all the big banks failed. Unemployment was officially in the 20% range. In other words, Eurozone periphery type levels, but growing. And there was immense political turmoil as well in which there were a whole series of governments that often lasted only months and presidents who virtually never, well, actually, I think never served out their full term for about a 15-year process. And Ecuadorians uh, responded to that. Uh, There had already been a crackdown on immigration in the United States. So Ecuadorians who had historically emigrated mostly to the United States emigrated primarily to Spain. And Ecuador had the highest percentage of any sort of major nation in Latin America of its people emigrating during this time period. And and the total was a very significant portion of the population. Over about 15 years, uh, a million Ecuadorians uh, left, which is a very significant uh, portion of the total population. What did it mean for the Ecuadorian currency? So Ecuador dropped its currency as part of these uh, supposed reforms again. What they did was dollarize. So it isn't, uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with Argentina, which pegged the dollar to the peso on a one-to-one basis for a critical period, which again led to a crisis there. Ecuador has been more aggressive than that. Uh, It has actually adopted the U.S. dollar as its official currency. And they literally fly in plane loads of bills from the United States, uh, you know, from buying from the Federal Reserve banks into Ecuador. One kind of interesting note is that they have their own coinage, which you can't use in the United States, but is sort of based on U.S. coinage, although it's not exactly the same. So it's a somewhat bastardized system. The critical thing in terms of economics, which, again, anybody in the Eurozone Uh, should understand by now, is that Ecuador no longer has a sovereign currency. And because no longer has a sovereign currency, President Correa's policy options are much more limited. Now, this was deliberate by the folks with the Washington consensus. They didn't want the heads of state to have policy options that they thought they were using badly to produce hyperinflation and periodic debt crises. So by adopting the U.S. dollar, they gave away much of the sovereign power of a government in Ecuador would have uh, quite deliberately. And that aspect did work in the sense of stopping hyperinflation. 
So President Correa, being a good economist, knows that this is a really stupid system, and he's criticized it, but he also recognized, indeed, the joke in Ecuador is that the only thing more popular than President Correa, and he is immensely popular, is the dollar. Because the people think of the dollar as the thing that stopped hyperinflation, which is probably not terribly accurate, but it's certainly understandable how people could have that view. When the Ecuadorian government has the dollar as a currency, it's quite stable, but it doesn't allow them to, say, print money in a recession to stimulate the economy. That's exactly right. And again, that's what folks in the Eurozone should understand. Uh, When you go into a sharp recession, there are three policy tools that are standard to get out of that recession. And these policy tools are not mutually exclusive. You can do all three of them at the same time. So one is aggressive fiscal policy, which is what you were just talking about. The second is an aggressive monetary policy where you expand the money supply and reduce interest rates. And the third is to devalue the currency. Well, you obviously can't devalue the currency if you're Ireland or if you're Ecuador because you no longer have a currency. Um, you have a foreign uh, currency which you and you do not control the value of it. You can't have an aggressive fiscal policy in the Eurozone because of the oxymoron developed by regular morons called the you know stability and growth pact which causes instability and negative growth uh, but you can't in a place like Ecuador have really substantial fiscal extension in a recession because you have to pay in a foreign currency and you can easily get into a debt crisis because you're again subject to the uh, debt vigilantes. And you can't have an aggressive monetary policy if you have the euro because the European Central Bank is controlled by the Germans and their death on aggressive monetary policies. But you also can't in Ecuador because you you know, (laughs) your central bank isn't able to do uh, the key things. It can't really expand uh, the money supply. And while it can have some effect on interest rates, uh, its ability to do that is limited. And that means that Korea had to go in fighting, of course, the global recession, this recent one, with very few of the tools you would normally expect to have available. And that means the fact that he was able to pull it off without Ecuador, which, of course, Ecuador's major largest trading partner is the United States, which is still in a very slow recovery from a terrible Great Recession. But Ecuador may have nominally gone into recession as we officially decided, but there was no year in which uh, growth was negative under Korea. So even in the teeth of the Great Recession, he was able to uh, adopt policies that led to positive growth in Ecuador. And as soon as they got out of 2008, growth uh, really picked up, and uh, Ecuador has uh, a growth rate well above the average for the Latin American region now. Into the situation we described earlier of political and economic chaos, we had the arrival of Rafael Correa as a political force. What can you tell us about the man and his origins? Well, he comes from a relatively poor family, Um, not 
grindingly poor, and he was uh, well-educated from the beginning, but from early date, his uh, father was arrested in the United States and imprisoned as a drug mule and died very early. The whole family was shamed by the episode. He grew up spending significant time in the indigenous community as part of his education and indeed speaks uh, one of the leading indigenous languages. Uh, so he, he comes from the more European in terms of ethnic uh, background, but he uh, at an early point got a real foot into the indigenous community. And that's unusual in Ecuador. Far too often the uh, more European descent uh, folks are the elites and have very little understanding or interest in the indigenous peoples of places like Ecuador. And was he influenced by liberation theology? He was. He's actually quite a strong Catholic and has quite a strong moral bent. You know, he has restricted sales of booze and uh, is opposed to gambling. But he is uh, quite uh, openly from a Catholic background. And yes, that does involve in part liberation theology, but it involves other aspects of Catholicism that were well developed before uh, liberation theology in terms of the entire Catholic social consciousness. And uh, as you probably know, even exceptionally conservative popes have uh, great concerns about uh, capitalism, or at least unrestrained uh, capitalism. And so that is an important aspect of how President Correa developed his views and then added to that this really advanced understanding of economics in which he rejected a lot of the what we call theoclassical economic views. Uh, This would be the Austrian school of economics, which believes that government is evil, that as soon as it gets involved, we are on, quote, the road to serfdom. This is von Hayek and such. And that form of economics during the time that uh, President Correa was getting his PhD in the United States was becoming exceptionally dominant. But uh, President Correa, actually his uh, dissertation was on attacking a number of these uh, dogmas, which of course have proven so disastrous for the world. What were the main problems then he faced when he came into power first? Well, everything. At first, he was elected with a strong support, but the way the election was set up, he had a very limited support in the uh, legislature. They have a, a single house, a unicameral system. He really, when he began, his supporters represented about 15% of the parliament. So he had very little ability to work through the parliament. And essentially, he went over their heads to the people. 
and they had a constitutional convention and they changed the constitution in the most recent election. It isn't simply that President Correa was reelected with about uh, 60% support and avoided any runoff, uh, but also his supporters now are immensely dominant in the legislature. So the first thing he had to do was, uh, of course, stay in power after the danger of a coup because his policies were completely antithetical to the the ruling class in Ecuador, which after the the banks were bailed out, they quickly reasserted uh, dominant political power in uh, many aspects of Ecuador and work with other businesses. So the normal situation in Ecuador is that there is a single firm or maybe a couple firms acting like a cartel that dominate most every industry. Again, this is a very small country. And so if you have a business of any significant size, it's likely to be the dominant uh, business in that country. So Correa faced uh, intense opposition from the United States. The United States certainly supported coups in Venezuela and other Latin American nations of this whole group of Latin American leaders who were elected on the basis of elect me and I will stop this insanity of the Washington consensus. Whether it was under Republicans or Democrats, uh, this Washington consensus uh, continued and indeed continues under President Obama. So the United States was always supportive of getting rid of Correa. And at one point, actually the police had a demonstration slash maybe proto-coup. And uh, President Correa broke the back of that by wading out into the police officers, opening up his shirt and saying, you know, if you want to kill me, shoot me in the front. Uh, Just extraordinary thing. So that was his first thing is simply avoiding the coups. His second thing was avoiding the incredible political instability of essentially the crony capitalists that had been running the place who had the great support of the United States of America in opposing Correa. But Correa didn't simply do those things. In parallel, began making his economic changes. And the key thing he did was to repudiate important parts of the debt. What was the level of debt at the time? The level of debt was, if you don't have a sovereign currency, crushing. Again, if you have a sovereign currency, the level of debt we found out is not you know, remotely as critical. Ecuador didn't and doesn't have a sovereign currency. And so that debt really was uh, sort of get Damocles uh, over them. And what Correa did was a combination of repudiating the debt and getting refinancing from China. And that combination allowed the Ecuadorian economy not to get trapped in a death spiral of the kind you see in Spain and Italy and Greece, but actually have a strong recovery. Now, Ecuador also uh, assuredly benefited from rises in commodity prices uh, because that's what it exports, right? It exports oil. It's the smallest member of OPEC, and it's the leading exporter of bananas in the world. And so it's also true that the rise in commodity prices 
was very helpful to Ecuador in getting an economic recovery. So why did he need to tap this line of credit from the Chinese? Was he blocked from the international credit markets for repudiating the debt? Yes. So he used this new Chinese credit to basically perform a stimulus package and spur growth in the economy and then hope to use the growth in taxes to pay back this debt to the Chinese. Is that the idea? Yes, and it's worked you know, incredibly well. Once you get growth, paying back debt is vastly easier. And Korea has had debt as a percentage of GDP falling sharply. So he's, he's actually met you know, those austerity things, but <laughs> in a completely different way uh, than they anticipated. Uh, he's done it through economic growth. And the other portions that even the Washington consensus said, you know, what you should do is spend money on the following things. You should spend it on education, you should spend it on health care, and you should spend it on infrastructure. And that is precisely what Korea has done. And he has essentially doubled expenditures or more in each of those three categories while cutting military spending. So he has done exactly what the Washington consensus said on the spending side. And it has been a brilliant success. It has gotten Ecuador out of the Great Recession, avoided any death spiral, avoiding any debt crisis, and that has transformed the nation in many ways. Ecuador, which was this huge net exporter of Ecuadorians, now has a net inflow of people. Just an astonishing thing to turn around so completely. You know, Ireland did it, but it took a decade, actually, in some ways, 25 years for Ireland to get to that point. Ecuador got to that point within about three and a half years. And Ecuador is a much poorer nation than Ireland. How did he manage to pull off this trick of buying back his own debt? Well, that's straightforward. That's what should have been done. That's what eventually even IMF and the ECB allowed the Greeks to do. As soon as you get into that economic crisis, your debt is far less valuable. And the win-win strategy usually is to buy it back on pennies on the dollar or the euro. And that's precisely what Korea has done. He is a brilliant economist. He's not really much like Chavez, for example, in you know most aspects of life. But it's certainly true that he is every bit as much like Chavez in thinking the Washington consensus is insane and that the key is to actually help the people. Not only did they turn around the immigration, they turned around the direction of poverty so that poverty, which is still huge in Ecuador, is declining sharply. And essentially, he's brought a million people in, again, a small nation, out of poverty already during his term. He's dramatically expanded education. And in particular, he has dramatically expanded education for poorer Ecuadorians, including the indigenous peoples of Ecuador. This is wildly popular with Ecuadorians. In healthcare, 
you can imagine how this transforms life to actually bring health care and things that bring health care, by which I mean primarily good water and sewage systems. So that in that aspect of infrastructure is also the single most valuable thing you can do in terms of improving health outcomes. But on top of that, they built hospitals and clinics in places where they never had modern medical care and where you would die or be permanently impaired for things that we can fix fairly easily with modern medicine. And that too has transformed Ecuador within a few years. This is thousands of parents who have gotten care for their kids or rushed you know, in acute care for their kids, and there's been an answer, and their kids have been saved or, you know, not maimed or recovered vastly more quickly. And the infrastructure, Ecuador had a very weak infrastructure, and your listeners may understand that this is a, a country that has three really different geographic regions. It has the Andes, this immense mountainous region, but it also has this whole coastal area. And on the other side, the eastern side, it has the Amazon. And indeed, Ecuador is a, a critical part of the headwaters of the Amazon basin. But the water's in the wrong side compared to where the people are. So they've had very little power. There used to be a railroad system that crossed the Andes, but they had terrible rains that washed out the trackage. And Ecuador has been without this key railroad, I think it's for over 15 years now. In fact, it may be you know, for over 20 years. When you drive in unimproved roads in mountainous areas that have steep drop-offs, A, that's terrifying, and B, it kills and maims people. And of course, C, those kind of unimproved roads wash out and they have a lot of rain. I've been on some of those roads in Peru and they truly are terrifying. Yes. So when you put in real roads that are safe to drive, that an ambulance can drive and can drive quickly to get to people, these things transform life. And these are the things that transform economies as well, because businesses love all of these things. And so smaller businesses, of course, have often been strong supporters of Korea as well. And in truth, big business knows that it is an immense beneficiary of all of these programs, because when you have people that are chronically sick, uh, you have workers that are far less productive and, you know, simply cannot show up to work at considerable times as well. I used to be cruel to my woman, I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Man, I was mean, but I'm changing my seat, and I'm doing the best that I can. I admit, it's getting better, it's a little better.
he's also fought a number of kind of political battles with the U.S. Well, <laughs> yeah, he, in some sense, didn't fight uh, the battles because he simply won them. The United States had a significant base in Ecuador, and uh, Correa said, close it. And the United States said, whoa, 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 no, 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 here, we'll offer you some more money. And he said, no, you didn't hear me. Close it. And so they closed it. And so as I say, there wasn't that much of a battle because he simply reasserted Ecuadorian sanity in all of this crazed U.S. drug war, which, of course, Latin America is the principal victim. Uh, so that's the, the first area. Now, you're quite right that the United States, on a host of things, hates Korea. And the thing that we will never forgive Korea is that Korea is successful, right? If you say, ah, you're following these stupid policies, you need to stop them, and your policies cause the country to blow up, well, that's easy. The United States says, hey, I told you so. But if you follow policies that the United States says, don't do that, that's terrible, you'll screw up your economy, and they take a million people out of poverty, it, they lead to a 4.1% unemployment rate, perhaps the lowest in all of Latin America, right? <laughs> if they dramatically reduce income inequality, then the U.S. is gnashing its teeth. Because what is it supposed to criticize Korea about? So there's essentially two things, of course. One is Assange. And this is, depending on how you view it, this person who is wanted on uh, valid warrants for sex abuse in Scandinavia, or he's the great whistleblower. In whichever side of the conflict, again, Korea isn't in that much of a battle because he simply said, no, hell no. And uh, the Brits made this classic mistake of not only writing, but then leaking to the media this thing that said that they would withdraw uh, Ecuador's sovereignty and invade the Ecuadorian embassy. Of course, that just was a disaster for the United Kingdom. And there's really no sign that Korea is anything other than we're a sovereign nation. We've chosen to grant asylum. Get over it. The stuff that is most uh, upsetting from the U.S. perspective, and frankly, I, I don't think does make sense, is that Korea does, to some extent, take the opportunity to poke the United States in the eye. So he does have closer relations with places like Iran and, at times, even North Korea, because he knows it drives the U.S. batty. I don't think those particular things are very productive. But it is certainly been productive to adopt good relationships with China and create an alternative block. And the United States has seen that that dramatically reduces the U.S.'s ability to coerce Korea and Ecuador to take policies. What does the emergence of leaders like Korea and the retreat of U.S. military bases in South America say about maybe the waning nature of U.S. power in, in that region and, and maybe more globally? Well, you know, it doesn't have to be waning U.S. power. It could be increasing U.S. power because people liked us, right? If we would get on board with sensible economic policies, sensible social policies, and become leading global opponents 
of austerity and leading global proponents of increasing spending on infrastructure, education, and health while reducing military spending. And if we got rid of our insane drug laws, that as I said, Latin America is a principal victim. All of those things would not reduce U.S. power and influence in Latin America. They would increase our influence. What are your hopes for that? <laughs> um, actually, most Americans understand that the drug war is, is insane. And in fairness, even conservative economists, and, and sometimes they're leading opponents of the drug war, so you'd get 85, 95% of economists saying you should get rid of the, those drug laws. And I'm also, you know, I have a doctorate in criminology. You would probably get 95% of criminologists saying you should get rid of the drug laws as well. And we do have finally some politicians willing to say that. And you can see when it comes to a vote in the United States that uh, anti-drug law positions frequently win a majority. So there is some hope. On top of all of the other people he's taken on, he's taken on the media in his home country. What have these reforms been like? Now, I'm a, a fairly typical American. I'm a, a really big believer in the uh, First Amendment. And what Correa has done is essentially, um, in some ways, very British, right? So you see this legacy of the United Kingdom in many parts of the world that it ruled, classically Singapore and Malaysia, where those autocratic governments simply trot out the, the laws that the Brits adopted on press. And of course, uh, compared to the United States, it is massively easier to sue for libel and slander in any country that has a legal system that is like the Brits or like the Spanish. And so much of Latin America has lesser protections than the United States in terms of First Amendment. Again, I'm an American. I like the American system. I don't like, you know, routinely suing the press for libel and slander, even when they're libeling and slandering political officials, because I, I want a bigger scope for those things to come out. That's my personal view. Now, so what has Correa done? He has sued personally several folks who he believed libeled and slandered them, and he has won, as far as I can tell, because they, in fact, libeled and slandered him. And the same kind of uh, suits could have been brought completely successfully in the United Kingdom today, by the way. And in these cases, Ecuador does allow a criminal libel. Correa has, in every case, forgiven, taken away any penalty, and not collected from the uh, journalists or, or the media companies. What is happening that is very different from it? Well, actually, it isn't that different from U.S. perspective, sadly, in the modern era, is that the, the private sector media is dominated in Ecuador by people who are fierce opponents of Correa. They appear to sincerely believe that he is the Antichrist, uh, which is interesting given his Catholic views. So they attack him, if they can, absolutely relentlessly. And they're also upset, by the way, that the, there are some public media outlets 
and they do carry presidential addresses. Now, again, that's not weird anywhere in the world. That's pretty much the norm. But what is different from many parts in the world is that Correa gives hour-long talks on substantive policy issues. And the public media and the private media are required to broadcast these things in full. Now, you can like that or you can dislike it, but it, it has certainly raised the level of serious public discourse in Ecuador by about 20 million percent. And on top of all, all of this, he's recently taken on the power of the banks. What happened to this political confrontation? This is a wonderful one. So Correo's principal opponent in the election was a banker. As I said, he crushed him politically, and everybody knows it's a fair election as well. The, the bankers are among the people that oppose Correa. Nobody opposes him more than the bankers. Now, there is also what the Brits would call the dole in Ecuador for uh, really poor unemployed people. In the U.S. context, we'd call it welfare. Correa's opponent said, if I'm elected, I will double the payment to the poorest Ecuadorians. Now, this is interesting for a deeply conservative banker, right? But Correa instantly trumped him by saying, great, why wait for the election? I'll do it now. And by the way, we'll pay for it by a tax on banks. In essence, an excess profit tax. And the banks in Ecuador, again, it's a cartel situation where the top five banks have over 80% of the market. <laughs> and so the banks went crazy. And being folks who just are almost pathological in their hatred of Korea, they did something that no banker that I've ever seen anywhere in the world has done. They communicated with every single depositor by email and by snail mail and said, hey, we are your friends. We are your bankers and we have your best interests at heart and we protect you from this rapacious government. But if Correa's policies go through, we're not sure we're going to be able to protect your deposits from loss. In other words, the banks deliberately tried to generate a massive national run on their own banks. This must be a first. That is a first, and my expertise is banking. <laughs> right? So I have never run into banks doing this. Right? There's a, a wonderful American comedy, Mel Brooks, called Blazing Saddles. And one of the comic riffs in this uh, is the, uh, that the bad guys to get the good guy killed deliberately send a black sheriff into this racist town, right? And the racist crowd is gathering around him and is going to lynch him. And he takes his gun out of his holster and he points it at his head and says, don't move or I'll shoot the sheriff. <laughs> And, and of course, being not only racist, but morons, <laughs> the, the, the racist crowd stops. 
the movie. Well, that's what the Ecuadorian banks did. They took out their metaphorical gun, aimed it at their own heads, and said, you know, don't reelect Correa or we'll shoot. And I happened to be in Ecuador when this happened. They put me in front of a special group of uh, Correa supporters in the you know, members of parliament. I explained uh, to them and to the Ecuadorian media how insane this was. And, you know, some of the Ecuadorian banking regulators said, maybe it's not a terrible, safe and sound thing to do to prompt a national run. It wasn't that much of a battle because Correa shows courage. You can see a, a theme, whether it's he's dealing with the United Kingdom or whether he's dealing with the United States or the bankers or the, the police, you know, where his life is actually at grave risk. He was, by the way, slightly wounded in all of that. Correa sticks to his convictions, and that is one of the reasons that the people have been so supportive. So the bottom line is the banks had to back off on this threat to cause a run, and the banker who was his leading candidate was left with his top issue taken away from him and attacks on his bank. <laughs> That's pretty much uh, the big things that have happened, but the proverbial bottom line is that Correa is so popular not because he gives special favors to his supporters, but because he's used the government in a constructive fashion, just like good economics suggests. And he is proving that what we knew, that good economics is pretty darn good economics, and the theoclassical economics is not economics. It is right-wing dogma designed by the plutocrats to pander to their interests. So the world actually works a whole lot better if we would go back to the much more effective policies where we mix private sector and government to produce more stable, more humane, and more vibrant economic, political, and social systems. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor Black. Thank you very much. Congratulations to someone Someone who's happy with you I guess he did the right thing I wasn't wise enough to do on this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and the talking heads on their road to nowhere. You also heard the Beatles getting better, and you are now listening to Tony Bennett congratulating someone. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Didn't I hold you tight? Why did you leave me here by myself, crying alone in the night? I 
thought you'd love me forever Somehow it just couldn't be Congratulations to someone But I wish that the someone 